From Sandberg Media and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air the first part of our interview with scholar and author S. Brent Plate. We discuss his new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Later on the broadcast, we get a preview of the new Chicago Sunday Evening Club documentary on immigration, Divided Families, Responding with Faith. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is S. Brent Plate, who teaches religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York. Professor Plate's teachings and writings explore relations between sensual life and spiritual life. He's authored and edited 11 books and writes regularly for the Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, and other sites. He is co-founder and managing editor of Material Religion, the Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief, and is co-founder and president of Script, which is short for the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. He's on the board of the Interfaith Coalition of Greater Utica, New York, and his most recent book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. S. Brent Plate, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. It's great to, great to be here on the radio with you today. I've asked you to start out by reading a short excerpt from the introduction to your book, A History of Religion and Five and a Half Objects, as a way of getting us into the discussion of sensual religion. Yes, I'd be happy to. This is, uh, comes from the uh, introductory chapter that I label uh, one half, and I think we'll get into what the, what the half is maybe a little bit later. So here's what I uh, say there in kind of a summarizing paragraph. There is no thinking without first sensing, no minds without their entanglement in bodies, no intellectual religion without felt religion, as it is lived in streets and homes, temples and theaters. Long before intellectual, systematic thoughts arise in the cognitive workings of humans, long before abstract ideas emerge about deities who create and destroy, the senses are actively receiving and processing information about the world and making meaning of it. Religion, being a prime human activity throughout history, is rooted in the body and in its sensual relations with the world. It always has been and always will be. We make sense out of the senses. This is the first true thing we can say about religion because it is also the first true thing we can say about being human. We are sentient beings, and religion is sensuous. Thank you. That was S. Brent Plate reading from his new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects. And I'd really like to sort of dive right in at that point, the notion that religion is an embodied activity, a sensuous activity. In one sense, that seems like that would be uh, the most obvious thing in the world. And yet you you have filled an entire book with, with wonderful uh, reminders of that. And it seems as if, at least here in the West, we've forgotten in some way that, that religion is an embodied experience. And so I'd like to start out by asking, what made us forget that? Where, where did we lose the knowledge that, that bodies and the senses are important to our religious experience? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, and um, I think we can point to a few different 
places. Certainly one is, um, you know, our education system. I, I see this. I have a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I've watched them grow up and watch them move from the ways they play in classrooms, you know, from preschool on up. And this sort of movement from sort of plain, very tactile plain, very, you know, sensual plain, and then eventually... Uh, you begin to learn and, you know, they read books and there's a big pictures and small text. And the older you get, the smaller the pictures get and the larger the text gets. So that we're just sort of reading these, you know, invisible kinds of words and uh, going straight to our brain. And we're supposed to sit still in our seats and, and read and look at words. So there's something in our education system that, that is, runs off the idea that to grow up means we have to forget about the senses and start just thinking with the intellect and just have an intellectual dimension. So grown-up people think about things and, and uh, children just play with things. Um, and, and the grown-up people who think about things, they, you know, they think about things literally, but they just think in general. So I mean, that's sort of things in the two, two senses of it. It sort of becomes, even things becomes a metaphor. Um, but then I think it's also certainly something of the predominance of, uh, of Protestant culture um, in, the, in the modern West that sort of shaped things. Uh, you know, this is sort of a different story, I think, with, uh, with Catholicism in the West. There's much more attention to, uh, to liturgy and ritual in the senses there. But uh, even there, it's, it's very much taught, you know, well, this is important, but it's not as important as what we think about um, so I, I wanted to kind of recover some of that, recover some of the ways that we do religion, that we, we enact religion, and, uh, and through the senses as well. So I think there's a few things, you know, it's, it's something about Protestantism, something about our education system, in, in, in short, that, that makes us forget about the senses. Or, or, or even if we don't forget about it, it tells us, well, that's, that's fine, but it's just not as important. You know, here's the serious stuff. The serious stuff is what we think about. The serious stuff is, is not what we uh, the, the senses that we engage. If you're just joining us, our guest is S. Brent Plate, the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and the author of the new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Well, I, I appreciate you raising these issues, particularly the, the notion of the, the influence of the Protestant Reformation on this division of kind of the thinking and the feeling. Now, I'm speaking as a, as a Roman Catholic, and when, when I teach my children, and, and I have children that are younger than you, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, but when I teach them about the faith, a lot of that instruction involves walking up to the altar. It involves sort of showing them the, the, the way in which at the altar rail there are, there are stylized versions of grapes and bread that are sort of woven in, and we talk about what it's like to... Uh, to to be moving through the space and you know these are young children but those very tactile visual and sensual images really kind of help me to communicate to my children what this faith idea is all about these invisible things become more graspable literally when when you can point to them and that it seems as if in in the the movement from catholic culture to protestant culture historically there was a very skeptical um, suspicion 
of these sensual matters. And I'm I'm thinking now about what it's like to talk about a politics of the sensual. Uh, in what way is is the sensual uh, a political act and re, reinvigorating the sensual is in some way uh, making a political stand? What what do you think about that? I, I think that's a great great idea. Sort of, um, I, I, there is something uh, I think political um, is certainly involved with it, and it's um, I think. Uh, the, the book that I that I wrote, the history of religion, five and a half objects, was, you know, and really in many ways trying to um, make a make an argument. Uh, as 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 one reviewer and uh, said, uh, you might even call it a manifesto. And I sort of I hadn't thought of it as a manifesto, but I but I do think there is something uh, of that in the book itself that I that I like, um, and and that there is there is something sort of a, a challenge to sort of to allow us to be okay with. You know, having the knickknacks on our shelf and not sort of relegating those to some sort of secondary status, but saying, "Yes, this is you know, this is really part of these experiences that I've had." Um, you know, maybe directly religious, maybe sort of only tangentially religious. But you know, we we collect rocks at the seashore and we collect different things in different places and we bring them home with us and take them, put them on our shelves and. Uh, but but again, so we're, we're we we all do this. So the the act is to try to sort of create a space um, for it to be okay, for us to to actually say, yeah, this is actually important. And these the grape designs, uh, you know, woven into the the the, the imagery in the church uh, that you were talking about with your children. You know, that that's not just something to be overlooked. That that's you know very basic for the the, the tradition itself. That um, these kinds of visual images and, these, and the way they touch on other other senses as well—that's that really uh, a key part of it. And um, it's not just scaffolding for some verbal account of things later, but it's it's actually it, it underpins everything. And and then it's very very central. You know, it's actually a central dimension. Certainly in the Christian tradition, it, at least traditionally, it you know everything leads up to the. Uh, to the Eucharist, to the communion, that um, it's the, the, the central activity is is eating and drinking, um, and you know I think that's that's significant um, in that as as it is for so many other traditions. So for it, it allows certainly a way to get into it with uh, with with children, um, but again it's you know we need to kind of remind ourselves the more we grow up and we we stop looking at the. At the images, and uh, we we think we've moved on, and you know we're sort of parsing these theological texts later, and uh, we need to you know remember that we the, the senses are still there, and that these are still key dimensions to these uh, traditions as well. So yeah, I think there I think there is um, you know a way for political activity to happen, and certainly social activity, sort of for for, for churches and as well as synagogues and mosques and temples to be able to. Um, you know, sort of come together and, you know, sort of ultimately interested in interfaith uh, connections as well and sort of thinking about how how bread gets shared among different traditions and how um, different di- different senses are used in the different traditions. Well, you've mentioned just now uh, synagogues and mosques in addition to churches and, and Hindu temples, and that struck me uh, in thinking about these questions of sensuality, we're very used to thinking about an architectural location, a geography, 
a place to take our bodies when we worship. And that, that seems to be true across a number of major religious traditions. And yet, when you start to talk about these other sensual activities, there, there really seems to be a, a division point between something like architecture and the physical huge object of a church or a mosque or an ashram, and then something smaller, like you mentioned, picking up stones at the, the seaside. And I'm wondering what you think about those kind of divisions, why it is that in Western culture particularly, uh, we've, we've allowed ourselves to uh, interact with no problem with these sort of big objects, uh, but there has often been a, a suspicion of these smaller objects, of the, you know, we, we take our bodies somewhere, but then we are expected with those bodies to simply be uh, spiritual, which is an invisible activity, or mental, you know, giving mental assent to a, to a particular dogma or doctrine. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think there is a lot of that. Um, I'm you know I'm trying to sort of, with my work I'm trying to suggest there's of course more of a continuity between those two things. That you know the very fact that we do pick up these you know shells and stones on the seashore is why religion has used these things as well. Why why stones are so important for for religious traditions, and it's because there's something. You know, endemic to the human body, something that something that we we need to touch and we need to feel and we need to see these things. Um, and so, you know, religion in a sense is is the uh, is the the human body writ large um, and uh, incorporates these. So I think there's a continuity between, between this very personal and then this sort of uh, grander scale. Um, I, I think one thing, certainly in a history of uh, well, Christianity as well as uh, other traditions, I think it's fair to say as well, it's always an issue of authority, and um, certainly the church has uh, has cracked down uh, in many play, many times in ways when uh, this kind of individual piety has has risen up, and people have you know tried to find you know the the iconoclastic controversies with. Christianity and, um, and and many others besides, where and then Protestant reformers that you mentioned earlier, this idea that um, you know in order to have uh, authority, it has to be you know justified, sanctified, you know, sort of put in place by some sort of authority figures, and so the personal kinds of effects are downplayed, and uh, you know it's it's we can't we can't be having people accessing the sacred outside of our confined areas. So I think you know one of the histories of, of religions is to is a question of authority of course but but looking rethinking those authorities as as redirecting the senses it's 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 always sort of an authority of the senses and when people get too much into the smells or the tastes or the sounds or the, or the sights the church comes along and create some sort of theological doctrine about it and sort of you know, wants to rope it in uh, in various ways. And the earliest Christians um, were, you know, trying to distinguish themselves from the, from the Jews and the pagans, and um, they, they clearly used incense in many places, which uh, got the various theologians to sort of argue against the use of incense. And, uh, we sort of see this through the history of Christianity, that theologians arguing against some sensual practice. Um, but of course, it's always after the practices have always have been going on. And in other words, Christians, you know, use images and use incense. Uh, and then someone has to come down and crack, crack down on it later and sort of suggest, well, why this is or isn't okay, or in what context, you know, 
it's usually about placing it within a proper context. Um, so the issue, I th- you know, I think is is one of authority uh, ultimately that divides the kind of personal from the the social connections there. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is S. Brent Plate, the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and author of the new book, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Well, one of the things that really struck me while reading the book was this chapter that you wrote on incense. And just a moment ago, you mentioned, you know, the the theologians speaking against uh, practices like the burning of incense. But you, you talk in that chapter about the time that it takes to burn something, and you use this wonderful image from Sherlock Holmes uh, talking about a three-pipe problem. And that got me thinking about the way in which we oftentimes neglect time in modern society. And let me give you an example of what I mean. I have a difficulty when I'm traveling across a large city, like I used to live in Atlanta, I now live in Chicago, I had a bad habit of leaving when I should be arriving somewhere, and the the reason why was because it was very difficult for me to think about the time that it took to actually travel to a place. I I, I was wanting in some bodily way to have the, the travel be negligible, to have it be instantaneous. But I think that that's part of a larger problem in our society. We want things to be instantaneous. We want things to be uh, immediate in terms of, of their their availability to us. But what you raised in this chapter was the notion that things take time. And certain activities like the burning of incense or the smoking of a pipe draws us back into the flow of time. And I, I wonder if you'd be willing to sort of speak a little bit about the impact of the flow of time on religious practice and why we maybe have, have gotten away from that oftentimes in our, in our current uh, society. I, I think that's uh, definitely, definitely correct. Certainly it's something of our contemporary society where we're, everything's fast and, and, and fast-paced and instantaneous uh, communications with the Internet. And everything that uh, allows us to have everything here and now, you know, I can I can find answers. My my daughters already know that if they want an answer to something, they don't ponder it. All they have to do is push a little button on a little object, and uh, this this little Siri voice comes on and tells them the answer. Uh, whether it's how many how many hairs are on a dog's head to uh, you know some crazy thing they've just thought up, and Siri gives them an answer, you know, within within seconds. Um, so there's definitely definitely something to the media and how it shaped our uh, society, um, you know, for for good or for ill. Uh, certainly, some things I couldn't live without. But um, yes, we, we we do speed up too much. And and so what what I've kind of tried to do, I wanted to I've done a lot of work in media with with film and television and things, but I wanted to do kind of a, a media unplugged. Um, and so these these these. Stones and incense and crosses. These are these are media. They're they're social media, and people use them in social ways. And they've been that way for you know for thousands of years. Um, so hopefully it's a it's a chance to slow down a little bit. I mean I think I, I think you know certainly we need to we need to slow down. We need to have times to uh, to slow down and to you know figure out how how long it takes to drive uh, from one place to the other and. Um, have a sense of uh, the, the the journey in between, you know, the, the sense that um, we're not just always at a place, but, but we're traveling, and that travel becomes uh, an important an important uh, thing. I just drove across country uh, with my dog. I was teaching out in Colorado, and um, I drove drove from upstate New York to 
Boulder, Colorado, and then drove back later. And it was just sort of the first time I've done that in a number of years, and uh, just, just by myself on the road and just just driving along straight roads and, uh, you know, really kind of anxious uh, at one hand, but then trying to just make it, and I'm not sure it's possible to meditate while you're, uh, while you're driving, but uh, nonetheless trying to get a sense of just, just enjoying the time and watching the, watching the cornfields and the wheat fields kind of pass by. Um, so I think there's, uh, you know, hopefully some sort of recovery, and certainly there's plenty of people writing about these kinds of things, and, and actually several of them I, I you know, referred to, people like Annie, Annie Dillard and others, uh, especially poets, who, who cause us to stop and think and look and sense and feel um, for, for longer periods of time. So I think the, I think the poets are really important. Uh, I think we... Poetry is not going away. It, it may be marginalized, may be marginalized for a long time, but it's certainly not going away because uh, I think the poets are there to remind us to slow down. And um, and I think I think religious, you know, not just the uh, religious traditions themselves, but the but the academic study of religion uh, needs to kind of understand this, that uh, understand the poetry of it all. That uh, religion is religion is poetic. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean it's not all kinds of other things as well, but uh, it's, it's poetic. And to, to get religion means you have to slow down sometimes. And I think to do good scholarly work, we have to slow down, but uh, also to be good practitioners, uh, we, have to, we have to slow down and let the incense burn, let the, um, let the drums, you know, beat, let them go on, and uh, just sit and look at things for a while. So there's... Uh, I guess an important part of of of, of getting religion is, is slowing down to to get religion, and uh, and again, the poets really really crucial in this uh, enterprise. This is things not seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion, and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of Script, the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is scholar and author S. Brent Plate. Brent Plate is the founding editor of the journal Material Religion and is a frequent lecturer at conferences across the country on the subject of the physical and material artifacts of religious practices. Plate is also currently the president of Script, the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts. His new book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. You can find out more about Brent Plate's work and his new book at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. I appreciate you mentioning uh, the centrality of poetry to the book, and uh, I was struck, uh, I'm, I'm a great fan of poetry and was struck by a lot of the, the, the reference that you make. One that comes to mind in particular is early on in the book, you, you mention some lines from, uh, from I believe, Eliot, where he talks about 
and I'm paraphrasing now, but I, he says, I don't know much about the gods, but I'm fairly certain that the river is a god. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the river is a strong brown god. Yes. Well, what struck me in thinking about what you just said was the title of your book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects. And when I hear the word object, I tend to think of a built thing, a designed thing. But I, I want to make sure that I'm clear and, and that I've got this right, that your sense of objects is much more broad than simply uh, the constructed items in our lives. But something like a river, a natural sort of given thing in the world, could be as much of a, a religious object, a totem, uh, a touchstone, as, uh, as, as something like a built, a built thing, like, a, like a, a wafer in the Eucharist. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think so. And, and, and really what I was why I chose the objects that I did, the uh, the bread and the stones, the incense crosses and the drums, was because they're, they're, they sort of navigate between the, the natural world and then the built world. You know, there's something, they exist, all these objects are close to nature. You know, the a cross is, of course, a, a constructed thing, but it's, but it's about as primal of a, of a visual mark that you can make. And, you know, children at a very small age can draw circles and, and kind of crossed lines. Um, so it's just at the edge of nature, you know, and, and getting into culture, something built, something sort of constructed. Um, and in some ways, the book, it, it's, it's not a terribly uh, overt narrative, but it uh, begin with stones, which in some ways is the closest to, I think, nature. Uh, and then it ends with bread, which is a much more sort of cultured, you know, it takes a, you know, bread comes from these natural substances, but it's an incredibly difficult uh, process to create bread, to, to, to build bread. Um, but I, so I, I'm interested in that kind of transition. You know, here's the, the natural thing, like, like water. Um, and I thought about water, and many people I've presented about the book, and many people said, oh, you should, you should use water in it, you know. And, and certainly it would, it would fit, and, and it could be, could be one of these. But in some ways, water, um, you know, is, is a little too much on the natural side. Uh, and, it, of course, it becomes other things. When it, you know, it's one thing when it sits in, uh, when it's in a river, but it's another thing, again, when it's in a uh, plastic bottle on someone's desk, and another thing when it's in a, in a uh, font at the, at the entrance to a church. Um, so I think it's I'm interested in that, again, that, that, that middle space between where it's at once natural and where it's culture, and, and somewhere in that building building process, I think it's kind of an interesting point to think about how, first of all, how reliant on these natural things we are, uh, and that these objects are, you know, stemming from the natural world. Again, sort of back to that slowing down, if we slow down to think about where this bread comes from, if we slow down to think about where these these objects around us come from, it, it, you know, I think it hopefully with a kind of poetic meditation links us back with, uh, with nature in some ways shows us are, are kind of uh, connected, how humans are connected with, uh, with the natural world in some deep ways. Well, S. Brent Plate, thank you very much for being with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, David. Enjoyed it as well. Our guest today has been S. Brent Plate, who teaches religious studies at Hamilton College in upstate New York. Professor Plate's teachings and writings explore the relations between sensual life and spiritual life. He's authored and edited 11 books and writes regularly for the Huffington Post, Religion Dispatches, and for other sites. He's co-founder and managing editor of Material Religion, the Journal of Objects, Art, and Belief, 
co-founder and current president of Script, which is short for the Society for Comparative Research in Iconic and Performative Texts, and he's a board member of the Interfaith Coalition of Greater Utica, New York. His most recent book is A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part one of our interview with S. Brent Plate. You'll be able to listen to part two of the interview next week at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. Keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about. You can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived at our website, So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog, just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, we offer a sneak preview of an upcoming television documentary being produced by the Chicago Sunday Evening Club for air later this fall. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Last year, I became executive director of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, a Chicago-based nonprofit that, for more than a century, has been involved in producing faith-based media. Over the years, a lot of that media production has been in the world of television, and the Sunday Evening Club has a long relationship with the PBS affiliate here in Chicago, WTTW. Now, if you don't know WTTW from anything else, You probably know the station as the first home of Siskel and Ebert and their long-running film review show that had many names but will always be known to me as At the Movies. Anyway, the Sunday Evening Club produced a long-running interview show for WTTW called 30 Good Minutes. Now that show ceased production right before I came on board. And since I've been here, we've worked with WTTW to strike out in a new direction, a series of documentaries that look at problems in the Chicago area problems that everyone in the city faces and wants to make better. And we tell stories about how communities of faith are offering positive solutions to those problems. Our first documentary, which aired back in April, was called After Prison, Responding with Faith, and it explored how ex-offenders can be reintegrated back into productive society after their time behind bars. I'm really proud of how it turned out, and if you'd like to take a look at it, uh, I'm going to make sure that we put a link to it on our thingsnotseenradio.com website. Now we're working on the next documentary. It's called Divided Families, Responding with Faith. In this documentary, we're looking at the current U.S. immigration crisis through the eyes of one West Chicago family, Amy and Carlos, and their two children. Amy is a U.S. citizen, and Carlos, her husband, was brought here illegally as a child. We tell their story as they try to find a path to legal citizenship for Carlos as they try to find a way to do the right thing. The full documentary will be on WTTW sometime this fall, probably late September. As we've been editing the video, we've also been working with the audio and having fun playing with clips, trying to assemble them into pieces that might work as an audio documentary as well as a video documentary. 
So for this week, we decided to share a little bit of this audio with you. This is one small portion of the full documentary, and what you're going to hear is similar to the structure for this same section in the video. We went out into Daly Plaza, which is a large public square near our offices here in downtown Chicago, and we did some person-on-the-street interviews. But we've tweaked it a little bit so it's going to work for radio. I hope that you enjoy it. So, here's a little bit of our upcoming Sunday Evening Club documentary, Divided Families, Responding with Faith. How long do you think it takes for an undocumented person to become a legal resident of the United States? Probably about nine, ten years, maybe more. Mm, Twelve to twenty years. It's a long time. Like Twenty-two years. It depends. Ten years or more. Oh, really freaking long. <laughs> Eight years? Well, if they're undocumented, it means they didn't put any paperwork in. And so it's, they just wait until there's amnesties. So the, the flow keeps coming in because they figure sooner or later there's going to be an amnesty as long as I don't get caught. And there's no more deportations, basically. So it's the people that have done everything properly are the ones that are getting, are not getting taken care of. How long do you think it takes for an undocumented immigrant to become a legal resident of the United States? Seven years. And do you think that that's an easy process or a difficult process? It's great. It works. People see it like the DMV. You take a number, you sit down, you wait your turn, you get your visa. My name is Michael Mann, and I'm the Associate Director of Mission and Advocacy for the United Methodist Church, connected to a group called Justice for Our Neighbors. And what people see is that illegals are those that aren't waiting in line, that aren't waiting their turn, that aren't playing by the rules. And for most people who are immigrants, there is no line. There are no rules that they could even begin to follow. But it's like entering into a Kafka novel. <laughs> My name is Tom Cordaro, and I'm the Justice and Outreach Minister here at St. Margaret Mary Catholic Church in Naperville, Illinois, which is part of DuPage County. It is just a, a bizarre and, and, and totally corrupted system of, of, of catch-22s and gotchas that, that really destroy human beings. And that, and that is, I think, a, a frustrating and, and, and maddening thing. How long do you think that it takes for an undocumented immigrant to become a legal resident of the United States? It depends on the status, what status are they on. And do you think that that's an, an easy process or a difficult process? Uh, uh, again, it uh, depends. You know, if they are on H-1 or a work visa, it takes it's a, a long process. Otherwise, it's an easy process. So, well, okay, for example, if someone's been living in the U.S., um, without status or illegally for some period of time um, and they marry a United States citizen, they have to go through a long, complicated process to obtain status. In many cases, there's exceptions, but generally it's not just like by nature of the marriage, someone becomes a resident or a citizen. I'm Laura Fernandez. Um, I am an immigration attorney. I practice primarily family-based immigration. So that means I represent basically mostly families or individuals trying to obtain some kind of status here in the U.S. 
So in, there's many different ways that it affects families, but there's a lot of cases where people are separated or have to be separated for some period of time or have to spend a significant amount of money on immigration fees or legal fees or whatever in order to fix their status, even if they're in a relationship or they're married to a citizen. So right now we have the um, unfortunate situation that 1,100 families are separated each day. My name is Lawrence Benito and I'm the Executive Director of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. 1,100 people are deported in this country uh, and this past April we, match, we reached a, an unfortunate uh, milestone of two million deportations um, under this president. Uh, more deportations than any other president um, in, in U.S. history. I mean everybody agrees that the system is broken and it doesn't function to meet the needs of our nation in terms of the kind of workforce we need. And it certainly doesn't work for immigrants who are trying to come here. I'm David Greenhaw. I'm the president of Eden Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And I think people of faith need to say it's about time for us to exercise such graciousness and find ways to reform our immigration laws so that we continue the practice of allowing families to be together, allowing us to build and sustain a strong economy that supports our people and helps put us in a position to be generous and supportive and engaged in the whole created order. That's what I hope we do. That was a small piece of the upcoming hour-long documentary, Divided Families, Responding with Faith, that's being produced by the Chicago Sunday Evening Club to air on our Chicago PBS affiliate, WTTW, later this fall. You can find out more about this and all our CSAC documentaries and the other cool stuff that the Sunday Evening Club has been doing for more than a century by going to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios here in Chicago. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is produced by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and Mary Morrison did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, and Alexander Badenoch. Our intern is Mary Morrison. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.
get off the table Mabel the nickels for the beer. She did not know she possessed the old and holy stone.